If you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been going through a little summer series, maybe about 10 messages or so. We're sort of in the middle of this, and we're talking about the concept of submission. And we've talked already about the submission of ourselves to our government. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that we are, as a command, to submit ourselves to the governing authorities that are over us. And we had a great time talking about the implications of what it means to submit ourselves to the governmental authorities over us. And then Peter moves on in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 18, that as slaves, servants, we are also commanded to submit to those who are our earthly bosses. Probably in our application of this text, uh, most particularly in our work situations, our employment. And we've been going through four particular outline points from 1 Peter 2, 18 and following. The first is the command to submit to our employer. Do you see that in the first part of verse 18, submit yourselves or be subject to your masters with all respect. That's a command, and it's a continuing command. And then we looked, secondly, at the context in submitting to our employer in the latter part of verse 18, not only in the context to the good and gentle bosses among you, but also to the unjust ones. Now that gets us into the realm of dialogue, doesn't it? If we have the context in this submission to our employer of having maybe one who is good and gentle, and that undoubtedly means a a believing boss, believing master, or maybe even to the one who is unjust, that means morally crooked, um, someone who is unreasonable. And we talked about the context of where you might find yourself and how we could work toward fulfilling the command to be subject to a person like this, whoever he or she may be. And then last Lord's Day, we looked at verses 19 and 20 on the character of one who submits to their employer. The character, not just the command, or the context, but also the character of one who submits. This is actually getting right down to the very warp and woof of our own hearts. Let's say we're a worker, and we are working for a living, as the phrase goes, and we have to be something both on the outside, but also on the inside. And in verses 19 and 20, We see the character of an employee, and that character is seen both positively and negatively. For the positive idea, verse 19, it says, does Peter in 1 Peter 2, for this is a gracious thing. What's a gracious thing? This this subservience, this subjection, this submission. For this submission is a gracious thing when, and then he's going to give us an example, when mindful of God, or maybe your translation says conscious of God or having a conscience toward God, 
one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In other words, perhaps you have an unjust boss. And because he's unjust, some of that injustice starts to flow down on you. And when it does, there is injustice done toward you. How do you respond? Well, Peter says in verse 19, if you, being mindful of God, are enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly, it's a gracious thing. What does he mean by it's a gracious thing? Because anybody who's suffering unjustly, it's not gracious in and of itself. But it is gracious in this sense, that when you are mindful of what God is doing in your life, by allowing such injustice, by allowing these sorrows to be heaped upon you by an unjust boss or master, you are actually seeing in your persevering through it grace from God. Grace from God. You and I might say about a hard day at the office, Lord, I need your grace today. I was mistreated yesterday. And in order for me to be the right kind of person, in order for me to be a Christian who wants to celebrate and portray the gospel as I am suffering unjustly, as these sorrows of injustice are being heaped upon me, I need your grace today. And that's what we need, most definitely. However, let's say somebody is suffering unjustly at their workplace, and, and they say they're trying to submit, and they say they want to do the right thing, but when those sorrows are heaped upon them, Instead of responding in the right way, even in the midst of the suffering, they respond in the wrong way, and they sin in the process, and when that injustice comes to them, they say, hey, Mr. Boss, that's not fair. But they're actually sinning in some way so as to be rightly accused of not being the right kind of employee. That's covered in verse 20. Peter says, for what credit, and by the way, that word credit, which is an accounting term, is so appropriate in this context, isn't it? Context of work. For what credit is it if when you sin? Notice, whatever you're doing, you're sinning in the process and then are beaten for it. You endure. He says, There's no credit. In other words, because of the little question mark at the end of such a sentence, it's this idea. Look, if you're suffering unjustly, examine yourself. And when you examine yourself, if you examine yourself and you come up clean, you haven't been sinning, you haven't been responding in a sinful way either in your heart or in your actions, then God's grace shall come to you. But if you examine yourself in the midst of this sorrow of injustice, and it's actually a sorrow because you've been sinning. I even gave a couple of examples last time, like the pilfering of the petty cash. And then maybe you get caught. And then maybe you're given uh, bad marks, a bad review. Perhaps you might even be fired. 
And then you come into your relationship with God and you say, Lord, I've been serving you and uh, this is not fair and I lost my job and, and I just can't understand why. Well, grace won't come to you. The, the rod will come to you. Chastisement will come to you because you sinned and then when you were mistreated or so you thought, there's no credit. There's no grace that's going to come to you. So what you need to do is expect God's grace, being mindful that He's watching, so that when you're enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly, you'll not be legitimately accused of doing wrong. Look at the latter part of verse 20. But if when you do good good things. You're a righteous person. You don't steal from your boss. You don't, you don't take what is not yours. Uh, you work honestly for what you're doing. You're, you're wanting to put bread on the table for your family. You're, you're wanting to supplement the income, whatever the scenario might be. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, there it is again, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You're going to receive grace. You're going to receive help in time of need. Now, there's a hundred implications of this, right? Well, but, but Lance, you don't understand because here's a situation at, at the work and you just don't know how unjust he is. Well, but see, you, you, you can teach a fine sermon, but really what we're talking about here is a situation that's so complicated that it somehow comes outside the pale of 1 Peter 2. Uh, perhaps, preacher, you, you just don't know or understand where I'm coming from and how long I've suffered. Or, or perhaps, in, in my desire to do good, uh, I was um, mistreated, wrongfully so. Uh, I was accused of something I never did. And you remember last time, we went right to Joseph in Genesis 39, and there were a lot of things he did right and he suffered for it. And what did he receive? He received from God grace. But it took a long time. It took a long time. And you remember even in that scenario with the cup bearer and the baker. And at one point when he helped them with a dream of theirs, you remember that story? And uh, he actually from God, a gift from God, was able to interpret the dream accurately, and uh, one of them survived, of course, and he said, now, look, s- since I did good to you, I-, I want you to make sure that you mention me to the, to the king uh, so that everything's going to turn out okay and that I'll be able to get out of this, this prison. A- and the, the Bible says, in, in almost an aside, it says, and that man forgot Joseph. Now, now see, that's where you and I might say, well, that's so incredibly unfair. And so who do I blame? Well, I blame God. I blame God for the circumstances because God could have very well brought Joseph to mind at the very moment that that man spoke to the king about this rightly interpreted dream. And so since God didn't sort of... uh, make sure that he remembered Joseph, then God's at fault. God's at fault for what I'm undergoing. 
And frankly, that's what a lot of Christians do. They say, well, I'm, I'm suffering unjustly. Uh, my job is what I don't want it to be, and I've been here for a long time. And I have been choosing as an act of my will to be patient, and I've been trying my best to make sure that I'm a good worker, and nothing changes. And so, because I'm blaming God, because I'm holding him to this, I'm saying I've determined that I've arbitrarily drawn the line myself, and I'm saying I'm stepping over that line because you haven't come through for me, God. Well, there's nothing in this text that suggests such a thing. Nothing at all. You say, well, aren't there, aren't there some nuancing and some qualifiers here that somehow I can determine in my own mind as the judge of the situation, as the overseer of everything, that this is unfair, I need to make a move, I need to do this, I need to, to, to get my own comeuppance, I need to get my own pound of flesh, I need to make sure that that person doesn't ever, as my supervisor, treat me that way again, so I'm going to arbitrarily choose, since God apparently is doing something else in the world, and he's forgotten about me. And so what did Joseph do? Did he say it was unfair? Did he say... God, you're sleeping, wake up, don't you know my plight? By the way, has anybody ever read the Psalms about things like this? Aren't the Psalms these cryings out of the psalmist? How long, O Lord? You say, well, that sounds like complaining. Hey, no one ever said that you don't go back to the Lord a hundred times. That's not the problem. The problem is is when I arbitrarily decide that at the 101st time that I went back and I didn't get the answer I wanted, that it's time for me to choose to do what I think is best. And so, we say, well, is there, is there any example out there? Is there any illustration? Is there any picture of someone who was so mistreated, so misunderstood, so ill-treated, but so patient. If you could just point me to that person, I'd be so happy to think about following such an example. And voila, the Bible knows our pain. The Scripture knows that all of these sufferings unjustly can be backbreaking. Very hard. No one's, no one's claiming that these things are easy, whether it's in the context of employment or suffering in general. What we're all saying is we need help. And help is on the way. Look at verses 21 to 25. This is an easy outline point with a letter C. Do you know why? The calling to follow in the submissive steps of Jesus. We we have the command, the context, the character, and now finally, the calling. And why is it an easy outline point? Because verse 21 says, for to this you have been, what? Called. See how easy it is to outline it? For to this you have been called. 
I am called. Called to what, Lance? Called to suffer. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. That's our answer. And what a sweet answer it is. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you. You and I have, as believers in Jesus Christ, are called to suffer. Immediately, the response on the part of some, if you know the beginning, the end, and the middle of your story, you might very well say, I'm not signing up for that. I'm not signing up for suffering. If you tell me that one of the earmarks, one of the definitions, one of the manifestations of what it means to be a Christian is also to suffer and potentially suffer much, then I don't sign up for that. But if you say, I am going to take up my cross daily and follow Jesus Christ no matter the cost. Here's the sign-up element. First page, number one, period, exclamation point, underlined, circled. The Christian life is a life of suffering. That's what he's saying. For you've been called for this purpose. And you know, in 1 Peter you might say that one of the, if not the greatest themes of the book of First Peter is suffering. Look at chapter 1. Look at First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. First Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace, there's that grace again, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Yes. Yes. And, and that holiness will include suffering. Suffering. You say, I, 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 I don't want that. I don't like that. I'm not looking forward to that. Well, do you know that in verse 18, once again, it talks about Christ? Knowing, verse 18, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. I'd call that suffering, wouldn't you? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What did they do with the lamb? They killed the lamb, sacrificed the lamb. So it's, it's inimitable to the Christian life that we're going to follow the very path that Jesus himself followed. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial 
when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This fiery trial, it's not something strange. It's, it's the very thing that you should expect when you become a Christian. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. He suffered, you will suffer in him, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And that's not all. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Wait a minute, isn't that a misprint? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed? How about you are really getting a raw deal? You're blessed. You are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And just like we're studying here in chapter 2, this is the same idea about the negative and the positive examples. You want to suffer for Christ as a good and noble soldier, not as a defector. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, you're not going to get any grace when you do those things. But... If you suffer as a Christian, according to verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And by the way, the very author of this book, Peter himself, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and notice this, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He knew about the sufferings of Christ, didn't he? Yes, he did. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then please don't miss verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, there's that word grace again, the God of all grace who has called you to, the, to His eternal glory in Christ, here's what He'll do in the midst of your suffering. He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now look, I'm not asking, bring on the suffering. Please bring it on. But boy, do I want to be in the context of what Peter is saying here. Here's what I want to be. Restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. And if suffering is the portal through which those four qualities come, then Lord, I'm your servant. Do with me as you will. And again, somebody may be saying, yes, 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 I hear you. I, I, I want to do that. I, I'd love to do that. But you've given me the example that I can't quite follow. What is that example that you and I can't quite follow? Well, look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 21. 
For you have been called, called to suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then right on the heels of that, verse 22, he committed no sin. You say, well, that's not an example I can follow. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Nope, I can't say that. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Oh, that knocks me out. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Oh, boy. This is getting worse, not better. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Ah, now maybe that's one for me. You see, there, there are what we might call unique and unrepeatable aspects of this text that is endemic of the Lord Jesus himself and he alone. And what are those? Those very things that I just read to you. He committed no sin. We are sinners. He had no deceit found in his mouth. That's certainly not true of us. He was reviled. He did not revile in return. We've reviled plenty of times, haven't we? And when he suffered, he did not threaten. Boy, we have a master's degree in threatening. But even though he has unique and unrepeatable aspects of what he did both in his sinless life and in his sacrificial death, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And who would the him be? His heavenly Father. And is that not what we can do? I would think so. I may not always be able to say, well, I certainly didn't commit one single sin in that controversy. I can tell you, as God is my witness, there was absolutely no deceit found in my mouth whatsoever in that skirmish at the plant. I I, I want you to know, Mr. Boss, that even though I was reviled by my fellow employees, I did not revile in return, and I'm perfect in every way. And when that threat came, I did not choose to threaten at all. I am completely clean. I am your best employee, obviously. None of us can say that. But if on balance, if in the main, you and I could say, I want to be the best Christian employee I can possibly be. I don't want to do the things that I see maybe other fellow employees doing, but I'm certainly not going to judge them. If they're not Christians, what I need to do is pray for them because they need the Lord. But what I want to be is a model employee, not just for my boss, but for my ultimate master, the Lord Jesus himself. I I do want to follow his example, and, and it's said to us right here, I've been called to suffer and Christ also suffered, leaving me an example that I might follow in his steps. So however halting and faltering were my steps, I want to honor him as Lord. I want to honor him as my ultimate boss. So even though I fail, and even at times if I suffer for doing wrong, I should take it, And also, at times when I did the right thing and I suffered and I want to take it. So whatever mix of right or wrong is all about my workplace and my involvement in it, here's what I know. 
If I can't figure out my own motives, if I did the right thing or possibly did the wrong thing or I did the right thing with the wrong motives or I did the wrong thing and I thought I had the right motives, whatever the case is, here's what I know. I want to do everything I can to keep entrusting myself to the one who judges justly. And it may even be heaven, my friends, for God to right all the wrongs and to figure out where the motives were But here's my responsibility, to do everything I can to follow in the steps of my Lord Jesus, who though he's perfect and I'm not, he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father as I also must do. Is that not so? I've got to do it. Which means that I'm focusing more of my time at the workplace or wherever my work takes me in being what I need to be as I'm following in the steps of my Savior himself. And, by the way, another unique and unrepeatable statement is given to us in verse 24. He himself, speaking of the Lord Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, now why why does Peter put that in there? Why does he write that just after he's talking about my need to be an example, to follow in the steps of the great exemplar par excellence, Jesus Christ himself? Why is it, how is it, that he goes on to talk about some of these other things that I can't be a pattern of. I can't emulate these things. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's only what Jesus can do. That's unique. That's unrepeatable. So how does that relate to me? I thought a lot about this, and I thought, why does he sort of go back and forth here? Jesus committed no sin. He didn't revile But he said, Jesus is an example for me to follow. And now he's going back to the unique and unrepeatable. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you were healed. How does that relate to me? I I see the unique and unrepeatable nature of what Jesus is doing on my behalf. And then I thought, that's it. That's it. The reason why Peter is talking so much about the perfect Christ who died the perfect death, who lived the perfect life, who was that atonement for my sin, including my sins in the workplace, including when I utterly fail, including when sometimes I'm even trying to live up to the right standard and I still live in a sin-sick shriveled up world where there's confusion and questioning and my motives are also questioned and I'm trying to do the right thing. But I also know that even in trying to do the right thing, I'm never going to live perfectly up to the righteous standard of Jesus Christ. So I'm still failing even when I'm trying to do the best thing I can do. And sometimes I'm not only not doing the best thing I can do, sometimes I just totally give up on that and I do all the things I want to do in my sinful self. And because of that, I need to know 
that Jesus Christ bore my sins in his body on the tree. What a comforting verse. Even when I'm the lousiest employee I could possibly be, he bore my sins on the tree. And then here's that part you and I can apply, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Oh, that gives me the motivation at my job. That gives me the motivation as a, as a wife and mother. That gives me the motivation as a Christian to say that if Jesus Christ bore my sins and I have committed a bunch of them and I am committing a bunch of them and I will be committing a bunch of them, he bore all of them on the tree. And as he bore my sins on that tree, the purpose of such sin bearing is so that I might die to sin, sin's mastery and sin's effects and live to righteousness. Now you know why Peter says what he says about the perfect Christ and about the example that you and I ought to be following and when we don't follow it. And in fact, when we are far from following it. Jesus Christ is being put up for us again as the sin bearer. And you and I have a place to go to so they can wash my dirty feet. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying on behalf of sinners like sinful self, me. And I blew it at work today. I was angry. I didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't want to do an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. I just totally blew it. My, my attitude was terrible. My work productivity was, was terrible. And I'm so grateful, as Lamentations 3.23 says, that like the dew on the grass in the morning, so your mercies are new. Would you give me another opportunity tomorrow? I want to work for you, Lord. And I want to work for my earthly boss. And I know when I'm not what I need to be, I understand that Jesus Christ bore my sins on the tree. And by His wounds my sinful attitudes at work can be healed. You say, is there healing in the atonement? You better believe it. The charismatic health and wealth prosperity gospel people want to say, there it is, by his wounds we're healed. And so every sick person, every diseased person ought to get up out of that wheelchair, ought to be healed of those sicknesses and and diseases because it says this, by his wounds we were healed. Oh, they will get up out of that wheelchair. They will be healed of their diseases. But perhaps it's only heaven when that will be manifested. Because there's healing in the atonement and that atonement goes forever and ever and ever and ever. And in the context of that statement, by his wounds you were healed, what kind of wounds? My sin wounds. That's what he's talking about, my sin wounds. Don't, don't, don't divert the context of this to something about physical healing and the atonement. It ain't there. But here's what is there. When I blow it, when I'm not submissive, when I don't submit to my government, to my boss, to my husband, whatever it may be, and God is there to remind me of my sin, possibly even by the chastising hand 
of the Lord Jesus? Or when I try to do the right thing and I am so motivated to be the worker for Christ Jesus that he wants me to to be and I'm misunderstood and, and my whole life and my example is being shrouded in somebody saying, well, that's Christian guy and we need to mistreat him because he's showing the rest of us up. And, and you're suffering unjustly. And when you do, just remember your Lord Jesus. Because by his wounds you were healed. All your sins and even the sins of others who mistreat you. Those sins will be dealt with. You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to revile in return. And if there's one last thing to say this morning, it is this. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep. Remember the context. I'm straying like a sheep who should have been working when he wasn't, should have been doing what would have been otherwise a good job, or maybe I was doing a good job and I was mistreated for it and I'm suffering for it, for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice the capital S and the capital O. Jesus Christ is our shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And what do shepherds do? Guide. Guide. Protect. And overseer. What's an overseer do? How about this? He oversees. He oversees. And you know what's a hint in that word overseer? He has authority. He has authority. So Jesus Christ, with me as a straying sheep, brought me on the right path of salvation itself. And now in my salvation experience of everyday life, he continues to guide and protect and oversee with authority so that you and I will be given grace by God to live rightly in our submissive relationships with others. Let's go out and make this happen. Let's go out and show the government, our bosses, our husband, others who might be over you in some way. Let's show them the example of Jesus Christ in and through our lives. Let's pray together. Father, these are, these are lofty examples. In fact, the most Lofty there is, our Lord Jesus. We certainly cannot live up to His example, unique, unrepeatable. But we can, our dear Lord, do what You've commanded us to do, and that is to keep entrusting ourselves to You, Heavenly Father, through Christ, even when injustice is happening to me. And I can work so hard to die to my own sin and live to a greater righteous living. As we close this morning, my wife and I have been wonderfully going through a devotional book by that venerable saint, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who says this as we close, O my soul, 
Your sorrows are like specks of dust on measuring scales compared with your Lord's sufferings. Can you not believe that the Lord God will help you? Your Lord was in a unique position. For as the representative of sinful humanity, their substitute and sacrifice, it was necessary for the Father to leave Him and cause Him to experience a desertion of soul. No such necessity is laid on you. You are not bound to cry, why have you forsaken me? Even in this situation, your Savior still relied on God. Can you not do so as well? He died for you and so made it impossible that you should be left alone. Therefore, be of good cheer. Oh, Father, thank you for what the Lord Jesus did for us on our behalf and how he lived that perfect life and that he never will leave us nor forsake us. We need him now. May we trust him consistently and may we die to our sin and live to righteousness. For the sake of Jesus Christ and his honor, may we be greater platforms for the gospel from our lives and our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.